You like my new flywheel yeah, logo on the door? Yes, the video team said I needed to up my studio games now. <laughs> so I painted the flywheel logo. First is my dumpster fire behind me <laughs> that I need to clean up, but yeah. Whatever. It's authentic. We like it. <laughs> Welcome back to the Commerce Collective, a podcast brought to you by Flywheel. You're listening to This Month Above the Fold, a monthly series on the Commerce Collective feed where Patrick Miller, co-founder of Flywheel, covers the most important e-commerce stories each month. And this is your February 2024 recap. I'm Emma Irwin, Senior Editor and Specialist at Flywheel. Let's get into it. Patrick, how was your February? It's been great. I um, just got back from doing a mountain bike trip with some friends in Arizona. So, yeah, it was wonderful. I had lived out there a little bit after college, and so fun to be back and goofing off in nice weather. Very nice, very nice. Arkansas has had beautiful weather the last week, and I'm like, please, can we just keep it for just like a little bit longer? I looked up your weather the other day, and it looked awesome. Much better than Baltimore right now. I can imagine. So today we are talking about the Vizio acquisition, of course. We're going to talk about some recent pieces on the state of the ad market, and we'll touch on the state of Alibaba, as well as Amazon's share of Chinese sellers, which was just an absolute mouthful. But story number one, Walmart, as everyone knows, has acquired TV maker Vizio. And as a regular person looking at this, you would think it's just another brand that is under Walmart's belt. But as us retail media folks look at it, that is definitely not the only case. Tell me about your overall thoughts here on Walmart's strategy with this acquisition. I think it's a phenomenal acquisition on a couple different reasons. You know, number one, Vizio already had uh, their number one customer was Walmart, still is Walmart. And that business is not necessarily just in the business of selling LCD panels. Uh, it's also in the business of advertising. And so as folks are using the Vizio televisions, they are they get to see advertising. And then this then gives Walmart the opportunity to extend its reach via Walmart Connect to give customers more personalized advertising. And then for the advertisers, they then get to see the closed loop of, you know, hey, what then happens? And so I look at this within the context of Prime Video from Amazon adding ads and then Walmart and reacting to then have, you know, a very similar offering at scale with an established player like Vizio and the means of distribution. So it's a really smart play. And I'm curious, is this in any way like a threat to Amazon's Fire TV brand and offering? They're sort of shadow boxing in the sense that they're very, very similar. And so I doubt Walmart is going to be carrying Fire Television. We'll see you know, what Amazon does with Vizio, but it's a smart acquisition. It's similar. And I'm be very curious to see what does Walmart roll out analytics wise? And, you know, really one of the probably the biggest challenges that Walmart has is that, you know, historically their customers, they don't have shopper loyalty cards, you know, as, as robust as say like a Kroger uh, or an Amazon that has everybody's email address. And so as Walmart is able to create these additional vectors of way of reaching people and being able to add personalization that then allows for better advertising and for advertisers the better ability to track uh, the efficacy of that advertising not just over a week or two but a much longer time frame as well so I, th I think it could be really really interesting to see where this goes and we saw from Walmart's Q4 earnings report that came out last week, I think, we saw that the Connect business is growing. And I'm kind of curious, like, how this acquisition sets Connect up for further growth down the line. To me, it gets into the sort of next topic as well, is all these advertising platforms are growing. And at a macro level, you know, the advertising business continues to grow. There's lots of noise around declining advertising businesses, you know, news out of Vice and others. But ones that have closed loop measurement continue to do exceptionally well. And, and so Walmart, 90% of Americans go into a Walmart, one of their 4,800 stores annually. 
And so their reach is high as anyone. And they have the ability to measure and they have the ability to see, you know, hey, if I saw an ad, whether it's television now with Vizio, search ad or a display ad, well, what then happens? And, and, and I think that's the key unlock here for brands is that, you know, increasingly they can actually measure the effectiveness on a one-to-one basis and not just via regression and an MMM six months later, but close to real time. And to me, that's the big unlock here. Would that require, per se, like a clean room down the line in order to actually bring all of that measurement together? Or can you do that pre-clean room? I think there's lots of different ways to measure. And it's a times sometimes becomes an academic debate. But this is a longstanding question. And I think sometimes marketers get distracted by reach and frequency are a means to an end, which is ultimately sales. And I was uh, recently reading Ogilvy on, on advertising. And the book opens with, a, I just think, a great line. And he says... I do not regard advertising as entertainment or an art form, but as a medium of information. When I write an advertisement, I don't want you to tell me that you find it creative. I want you to find it so interesting that you buy the product. And so this is, you know, this is written decades ago. And I feel like marketers, it's changing right now because we we increasingly have the ability to see closed loop. But in certain ways, folks got, you know, distracted by reach and frequency. And they thought that's what they were shooting for. Nobody reports to Wall Street on reach and frequency. They report on sales. And so what's happening is that the dollars are shifting to where the performance is. And if you further in in Ogilvy on advertising, he talks about DR marketers and, you know, direct response marketers. And and, and many times, direct response marketers, they seem like they were the uh, lower class than brand building uh, marketers. But DR is increasingly taking over because you can actually measure what the performance is. And, and, and a lot of folks will point to the fall of the newspaper industry. And it's like, well, okay, well, what's really happening there? And so like, to me, it's like, I look at like, okay, they had a lot of the revenue came from, you know, subscriptions, which is mostly sustained. There was a bump during early Trump, but that's, you know, eroded a little bit, but it's still mostly there. But on an advertising perspective, you know, three very large drivers of their advertising business, classified ads, realtor ads, department store ads. Okay, well, let's look at all three of those. So on, you know, realtor ads, that's all shifted over to Zillow and Redfin. And then on department stores, you know, have eroded um, just as department stores eroded, you know, Sears ain't advertising that much. And then within classified ads, it's shifted over to Craigslist and, and over to, you know, Facebook Marketplace. And so in 2002, newspapers had about 96% share of classified revenue, which is a couple billion dollars. Today, you're talking single digits. And so they've been sort of picked apart by these various, you know, these other publishers that are, quite frankly, meeting the customer's needs in a a better way. And now they have to figure out what is the value of what they're creating as publishers, and then how do they monetize it? Some of it will be affiliates, some of it will be subs, some of it will be advertising. But it's certainly a very different game than it was 20 years ago. Why didn't the publishers, like the newspapers, why weren't they able to kind of keep up with the shift in what's happening? Like, it amazes me that all of them are kind of in the same boat when it comes to struggling in this regard. Why weren't they able to keep up? Well, some did. I, so like, I think the one of the smartest, Wall Street Journal. And you know what they did from day one? They put up a paywall. And they said, you know what? If you want information, we are creating value here. You want to see it. You know, you have to pay. And, and just as you'd have to pay when you pick up a Baltimore Sun. And so there, I think there are lots of instances where publishers are doing well. But the idea that you're going to surf Meta or Google and rely on their traffic, you know, and then monetize on banners just isn't true. And so they have to think about braided revenue that looks across different ways of pulling in an audience. And then how do they then monetize it? And, and increasingly, even seeing some publishers where they're just doing, you know, nothing but subs. 
the information is a good, especially on this very specialized basis. Uh, the information is a good example for technology, escape collective in cycling. The latter is totally ad free. And it's, you know, so it's all just driven by members. And so it's just different to me. It's, it's, it's also going to be interesting to see what happens to local news. And so, you know, you have, you know, the American journalism project, you have a number, Baltimore Sun was just recently purchased, was held by, I think, Advent or some other PE firm was just purchased by the head of Sinclair Broadcasting. And it's like, okay, well, and, and at the same time, we then also have a nonprofit Baltimore banner that popped up two years ago. So, okay, well, how do these folks make money? And because a classified business ain't coming back, realtors not coming back and department stores aren't coming back. So it's a, you know, sort of fascinating question of, you know, sort of how they create a braided revenue model that keeps them, you know, going forward. I am curious. I read you mentioned Google in passing, but I read this piece on LinkedIn by someone that I don't remember, of course. But it was about how like Google did retail pretty well, but they have suffered, not suffered. They have struggled to do retail media well. And so I'm kind of curious, like, why did Google struggle so much in that regard? And what is the future of like a Google search results page look like to you if that is even relevant in the future? Google shopping has struggled historically. I think that's been well reported. But much of Google's success is via direct response. And so in certain ways, they've been highly successful. And you know, search is all direct response. As they shift over to Google Max, like that, that's all direct response. And, and they can then measure it. So I think it's if you go back 20 years, yeah, do they want Amazon to have as big of a search business as Amazon does? No. Would they prefer that to have that themselves? Yes. But I think overall, I mean, to me, the, the most interesting thing with Google is sort of what happened you know, with the federal government and how do they approach the display business. And so I think Google, as we look forward, you know, everybody's talking about like, okay, well, what happens with, with search and with Gen AI? And, you know, you have Amazon launching Rufus, you have Google presenting different results. And I think there's, I guess, a couple ways to think about it. One, on Google, many of Google's queries are not monetizable. And so right now, like I'm reading Don Quixote. And so I'm like, I'm like over the weekend, I'm like, okay, doing searches, like trying to understand this damn thing. You know, there ain't nobody's bidding on Don Quixote <laughs> plot summaries. And, you know, so they're using Gen AI to then help me and help me find that. And I was like, ah, that's a great experience. I'm gonna keep going to Google. They weren't making a nickel on that beforehand because nobody's bidding on those terms, right? So that that's great. And at the same time, like I see with Amazon and even with Instacart, when they're doing Gen AI, they're creating summaries, they're, they're pulling, you know, data sets together, but they're also creating creating different surfaces in different ways. And so like everybody thinks a search engine result page has to be this thing that you scroll. Well, one of the things I think, I think Instacart's actually done a phenomenal job with, and, and, and I always call this the peanut butter problem. There's only two people that really make peanut butter, right? So it's like, it's a pretty bad second price auction. And so Instacart has to create auction densities on different vectors besides just, hey, I searched for peanut butter, right? And so they have to create more SKUs pulled together because at the end of the day, they only have 30,000 SKUs within a regional grocery store. So in order for them to create auction density, they ha it can't just be search, you know, scroll, click buy. They have to create different ways of browsing and, and they're doing it horizontally. And so like I go to buy it again and I'm like, oh, okay, I can now shop my aisles. And so now I can then go down and I can be like, oh, you know, fruit aisle, kids aisle, you know, whatever. And so the, the vector is no longer, hey, I'm searching for blueberries or I'm searching for peanut butter. It's all the fresh fruits or all the kids snacks. And so that's then creating auction density and their ability to monetize it even on a summary with, with Gen AI. And so to me, it's like, my guess is as we look forward, it's like we're going to stop thinking sort of just scrolling and we're going to start thinking horizontally and like what are the various surfaces to allow these brands, the retailers to create auction density, but and allow the customer to discover what they're looking for in an efficient way. Interesting. I like it. Scrolling horizontally. 
That's a new one. It is. You, seriously, the go go to Instacart's doing it better than anybody else. I know what you're talking about. I've just never thought about it like that, but you're on to something. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get into story number three, which is another combination of things we're seeing happening with this time we are heading across the world over to Alibaba. And then we will also come back to the US for Amazon or the West for Amazon share of Chinese sellers on its marketplace. But Starting with Alibaba, CNBC put out this article this month discussing their focus on international growth as it's seeing sluggish growth in China. International growth means marketplaces like Lazada and AliExpress as domestic marketplaces like Tmall and Taobao have only seen 2% year-over-year growth. Do you have any thoughts on this dynamic and what's going on here? Chinese economy very much struggling, and so their internet companies are looking for growth overseas. And so with an Ali, 2% growth domestically, 44, I want to say, internationally. And then if we look at Pinadaldo, who is the parent company of my favorite shopping expedition, which is Timu. And I also we got like dinosaur t-shirts that are just awful. But so like <laughs> my three-year-old loves them. And uh, he would just like wear the one like for like a week straight. And so I got him more dinosaur t-shirts. And so I'm playing on Timu. Unfortunately, they don't have a tag on the back. So like much like the sweater I bought on Timu, like I'm like put dressing them. And I'm like, I don't know which day is which, but like you know, <laughs> we're, we're figuring it out. Yeah. But so like Pinadaldo owns Timu. And so even though it with all the money that they're spending on meta and uh you know so open web advertising and search and whatnot so their revenue up 94 percent. so that's an aggregate but their net income is plus 47 percent, and their net profit margin is 23 percent. and you compare that to amazon six percent and so i think a lot of people are like oh this is going to end up like wish.com and i was like no it's not they got a, a heck of a balance sheet they're growing rapidly and they're profitable and so that's a killer combination but to me, the the really interesting question is like, okay, sure, they can spend a ton on, on Meta or Google or whatever to drive their businesses. But it's like, what's the secret advantage that they have? And I think that one of the big drivers is it's called the de minimis provision of the Tariff Act of 1930. And so what that means is that shipment sub $800 is no tariff. Current you know, U.S. Uh, tariffs on Chinese goods is about 19.3%. So they're able to then ship these over. And a third of all packages coming into, like small parcel shipments coming into the States right now are coming from either Xi'an or Timu. And so they're able to then send these onesie twosies and then skip over basically a 20% tax. That is a monstrous, monstrous advantage. And then allows them to then sort of allow lower prices because they don't have to pay that tax. And quite frankly, it reminds me of 10, 15 years ago before I had a whole bunch of gray hair, Amazon did not pay you know, state sales taxes. And it wasn't until, you know, and, and so like back in those days, like Amazonians like couldn't go to certain states. And if they landed even in, in a layover, they couldn't turn on their phones or it was like blocked to turn on because they didn't want to have to pay, you know, state sales tax. And so now it's sort of what's old is new again, is that these insurgents have this huge advantage because they don't have to pay taxes. They don't have to pay tariffs. The legislature is starting to talk about closing that loophole. It was originally designed for tourists coming back so that you didn't have to declare and pay tariffs on whatever trinkets that you picked up overseas. But it's turned into a major competitive advantage because they're not shipping over pallets. You know, they're just doing at onesie twosie because it's on a per shipment basis. It's not on a seller basis or an individual basis. The only other last piece we have to cover is Marketplace Pulse put out this article talking about Amazon claiming Chinese sellers on the platform are now significant in like a form that they filled with the SEC. Does that tie into this story at all in a way that I'm not able to think about right now? Please explain. <laughs> no, it absolutely does. And so one thing I think has been underreported is like, if you look at the rise of Timu and then also TikTok shopping and then also Amazon Marketplace, the sellers over there, that's where they see all the growth. 
And so what's the inverse of that? Where is that rocket, those three rocket ships, where is that then taking from or preventing others from growing? And so like one of the headwinds is going to be other marketplaces that people are trying to get off the ground right now. So if I look at, for example, Walmart's marketplace, they are going to face real challenges here because of just how robust the growth is at especially TikTok and Timu, the lesser extent Shein at the same time. And then also then it's like, okay, well then targets, you know, in-store business, target reports in a week or so. I'm going to be really interested to see what happens there. But all of those, because because of all the growth on these various platforms, then makes it harder to grow elsewhere, unless you have either the cost advantage like you do on Timu or the traffic advantage like you do on, on Amazon. So it puts the emerging marketplaces in a tough spot. Got it. All right. What is your favorite story of the about nine that we just covered in 20 <laughs> minutes? <laughs> I'm fascinated by Timu. I'm like, I'm absolutely obsessed with it. And just like in, in understanding that business because it's so different. I just enjoy shopping it, learning it and just like how they're like, where are they winning? Where are they challenged? What happens from a legislative perspective or a regulatory perspective? It's on a bunch of different vectors. It is super, super interesting. I figured that would be the answer. I did actually download the app. And I think it's funny that even though the Super Bowl ads tried to tell us it's Temu, but I think we're all going to call it's it's Timu. <laughs> yeah, I'm just a hick from Baltimore, so I'm going to mispronounce everything. But it's, they're growing as fast as they're growing and they're profitable. They're putting all this money into, hey, how many people can I get to download the app, which is obviously working. And then what happens? And so, like, how do they then monetize that over time? They're just they're just playing a really interesting game here. Yes, I would say from downloading the app, I did not buy anything. But of course, I went looking through all of the different games and whatnot that are on there because that's just oh, something. Oh, you have to buy buy stuff. It's fascinating to watch it buy. Like if they don't hit the shipping window, they give you rebates. And so, and I'm sure it's punitive against the sellers. I don't know how it exactly works, but it is absolutely fascinating. I mean, and then the other one is then the Congress is now talking about, okay, well, what is this then? Is this then violating any human rights issues? And it's just like, it's a whole nother one where you're just like, I have no idea. And, you know, so it would certainly be unsurprised, but like, okay, how do we regulate this? There is no gatekeeper here. So this is just going to be from a regulatory, legislative, and just, you know, sir, open marketplaces perspective going to be an interesting one. Crazy stuff. Okay. I think that's everything for us. That was a bunch. Yeah, <laughs> that was a lot, but we got through it. Tune into next month's episode for the latest and greatest, what truly belongs above the fold in e-com news. I'm Emma Irwin, and I'll see you next time.